Welcome to the New Abbey podcast. We are in a series called Questions, God, Faith, Life, and the Challenge of Being Human. Today's question is, why do we refer to God as he, and why don't we refer to God as she? The question I have for you all is, what does play like a girl mean to you? So in my personal life, I'm about a year and a half free from saying he, from God. I've been clean about 18 months, and um, it's been such an interesting journey because I decided, yeah, like about a year and a half ago to just see what would shift in my mind. Because the funny thing is, is I think when we, when pressed, a lot of us would be like, no, God is not an actual man, right? Um, but yet the language and the way we see God and understand God is so natural to say he and all these things. And so I was curious to see what would change in sort of unpacking that. And so we'll do that more this morning. Um, so personal context, so I'll start with. Uh, when I was eight years old, I lived on a street where there were a set of brothers uh, to the right of our house, a set of brothers across the street, and then me and my best friend Crystal lived next door to each other. And we were um, growing up in the 90s, so Mighty Ducks was our favorite movie. And we played outside and drank things like Surge and Kool-Aid Jammers that most certainly are having an effect still on my body. And um, so most days after school, we would play roller hockey because of Mighty Ducks, obviously. And one day, the two sets of brothers were like, oh, we're so excited because hockey practice is starting. And I'm like, practice? Like for what, like a team? And they're like, yeah. I was like, oh, cool. I want to be on the team. And they're like, oh, no, no, girls, girls can't play. And I was like, the thing we do every day after school I can't do you know, with a jersey? And they're like, yeah, no, girls can't be on the team. So then I looked at Crystal, and I was like, we're going to be on this team. you know? <laughs> and she's like, actually, I don't really like hockey. I was like, nope, yes, you're going to be on this team. <laughs> I don't care. So I did what every year does, and I go and I run crying to my parents. And my mom, you know, my Mexican mom, her face is just like, they said, you can't, you know? <laughs> Next thing I know, we are on the team. Um, Crystal and I are number one and two. We're the only girls in this entire roller hockey league. Um, I was probably the only black person, but this context is for, for women. So um, all that to say, by eight years old, I very clearly understood that being a girl meant I have to fight for a seat at most tables. Right? These things that I was naturally doing, we play hockey every day, but now you want to make it a team, you want to organize it, and I can't be a part of it? No, thank you, right? So uh, I th as I grew up, obviously, I realized that is not an isolated incident. We obviously have societal uh, history that has said to girls and women, you must fight to have a seat at the table. We are not going to give one to you. And I think what's interesting is to see how that plays out in our churches. And I think it plays out in our churches, it plays out in our interpretation of scripture, and ultimately plays into the way we see and understand God, which I think has been the most detrimental to it all. 
So uh, you do not have to be a women's studies major to know that we have had some pretty crappy history with the way we have treated women. And I'm not talking America 2017, I'm talking forever. So um, <laughs> when we go back to, uh, it's important to understand the context of when scripture was written, of when Jesus was uh, on this earth. And some of the most revolutionary things that Jesus did was simply speak to women, okay? That should give you an insight into what was going on and how the world uh, did not value or see the value in women, right? When talking to one is revolutionary, we've got some work to do. <laughs> so um, we've got that going on, and we all know that context, right? And then we've got uh, our context now, uh, Los Angeles, 2017. Women still make less than men for doing the same jobs, right? They can play roller hockey on the street, but you want to put a uniform on it, and now you're less than, right? We've got um, less than 1% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. The statistics go on and on and on. But I think what's important to understand when we talk a lot about New Abbey is the moment that you begin to other someone, the moment that someone starts to become less than, violence becomes inevitable. That's what's happening in Charlottesville. And that's what's happening with women in America. I was reading this week. Um, so in our country, from the year 2001 to the year 2015, we had around 3,000 people who were killed in terrorist attacks. We lost uh, 2,000 troops, US troops in Afghanistan, and 5,000 US troops in Iraq. And during that same period of time, 11,733 women were killed by either their husband or their boyfriend. Because when you start to see someone as less than, violence is inevitable. And we have a clear, clear problem with valuing women in our society. So what does that have to do with the question? What does it have to do with any of this? Mary Daly puts it very simply when she says this. When we make God man, we make man God. When we make God man, we make man God. So in our interpretation of scripture and our understanding of, of God as male, our society then starts to look at men how? As better than. They are closer to God somehow. And that is detrimental not only on women, but on men, on our society, and the way we understand God. Thanks for those snaps. So, in this question series, something that has been absolutely important is that we understand context in scripture. And as we uh, talked about last week with A um, Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac, that wasn't the wild part because that was asked by most of the gods of that time. Using he and father and king for a god is not... Uh, Unusual in that time, that is what everyone would have expected you to do. We say he for God because empires had kings. Because in that day, the most respectful pronoun that you could give someone was he. It's very simple, right? So, like we said last week, Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac isn't the wild thing. The wild thing was the subtle and subversive language in that text that implied that they were both going to come back down the mountain together. And that's what scripture is constantly doing. It's saying, yes, we will put this and say this in a context you will understand, but we will add some subtle and subversive language to get you to think that maybe it's bigger than that. 
Maybe this is a little more revolutionary. Maybe there's a counter narrative. Maybe this God just isn't a king or a, a man as you would understand it. Maybe there's more. So there's several places in scripture where we see God uh, as displaying sort of feminine characteristics, right? We'll look at two. Um, I don't know which one the first one is, but it's Deuteronomy, everyone's favorite book. Um, like an eagle that rouses her chicks and hovers over her young, uh, so he spreads his wings to take them up and carry them safely on his pinions. Interesting. The Lord alone guided them. They followed no foreign gods, right? Then the second one is Isaiah. He will say, I have long been silent. Yes, I have restrained myself. But now, like a woman in labor, I will cry and groan and pant. What's so fascinating about these two scriptures in particular is you kind of see the pronouns go back and forth, right? They're using this, this he that they, it's, it's the greatest uh, sort of symbol of respect that they had in their language. But the writers, I believe, and scriptures already believe, um, I believe was already thinking, people are going to get caught into seeing this God as a king like the rest of the kings. I'm going to drop these breadcrumbs to say, this king was in labor and moaned, birthing you, right? That is not a male characteristic in case you're wondering. <laughs> Women give birth, right? And throughout this time, deities, female deities, would be represented as birds. And so when we see this language that is referring to God as an eagle, as being under God's wings and all of these things, that is the subtle breadcrumbs that the writers are dropping to say, expand your mind. This God is not exclusively male. This God is not exclusively female. This God is bigger than you think. And it's very important that we are aware of our language and what's going on because like we've seen, when we can get into a place of God is exclusively male, we miss out on a huge part of who God is. And I'm not just saying all this because I'm like, the world is mean to women, and if we could just get around this, then the world would be nicer to women, right? Which I do think will be an effect of it. But we are missing a huge part of who God is. And as I was reading and thinking about this, and I was like, gosh, we have got to uh, open up our understanding of God as beyond male because that is so limiting to men, women, and God, I started finding all of these other things. God is referred to as masculine and feminine, and then also a lily and a rose and dew and wind and fire and a mother bear and a lion and a lamb and a whisper and a woman in labor and a comforting mother, right? Oh my gosh! That's all we talk about at New Abbey is the story of God getting bigger. And I was even stuck for a week of like just finding this masculine and feminine. When the writers are saying it's so much bigger, God is a king and a mother and a father and a queen and wind and a whisper and dew and a bear and a fire and a lion and a lamb, right? And the, it's so fascinating and because I'm like the writers are like reading me right now. Like they knew that we were going to be able to get, that we were going to get stuck. They knew that we were gonna take what was culturally made sense at the time, which is men in power, and they created this subtle and subversive narrative to try and fight it, and it's so beautiful. And as I'm reading this and I'm just like, wow, this is bigger and beautiful than I ever thought, it became more sad and destructive to think about what we have done to the image of God. We have taken this big, revolutionary, robust God that is wind and fire and earth and water and Captain Planet, and we have brought it 
down, thank, thank you, um, to something that we can hold and understand, which has created so many detrimental effects in our world, right? And it doesn't even make sense. I was joking with Stephanie, we were talking about this, and I was like, it's funny because when pressed, most people would not defend that God is an actual man, right? But yet saying she for God really shakes people up. And I was like, it's kind of like, there are kids in the room, so I gotta tell the story carefully. It's kind of like Santa Claus, who no one has seen in person, um, but still works. Um, everyone would agree that Santa Claus has not been seen, um, but yet black Santa Claus cracks people up, right? Like I grew up in a house and we had, we had black Santa Claus, and he would come over and be like, Black Santa? Like, are you serious? <laughs> this person that doesn't even get seen um, can't be black? Like, how can he not be black, right? How is that funny? But we have so normalized this idea of this German gift giver sneaker into houses um, that has never been seen, that he can't even be black. And it's the same weird giggle people get when you say she for God. And I'm like, really? Like you want to try and tell me that this omnipotent God who you wouldn't even believe is a physical man just can't be a woman. Oh, that's so detrimental. We are missing so much of the story and power of God when we do that. So um, we're gonna watch a video because videos. And um, it's funny, I was telling Sammy, I was like, should I just describe this story? And then I described it to her and then show the video. She's like, no, no, just show the video. It's like, okay. <clears throat> um, I'll just set the scene. Most of you, I'm sure, have, have heard about this, maybe even seen this video or understand this, what has happened. But um, in Yellowstone National Park, uh, when it was created, there was no protection for wolves, right? And so the wolf population was essentially eradicated. And then deer began to eat Yellowstone and graze it essentially to the ground, right? Just kind of ruined it. And then uh, in 1994 or five, somewhere in there, they reintroduced wolves into the population um, and something pretty magical happened. So we are going to watch a video and then circle back. One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years. That the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. 
much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. Here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. That was better than me explaining it. I would have been like, trophic cascades. Um, so this is what happened, right? So I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, this is it, right? Let's think of woman, women as wolves, right? This, I know, right? <laughs> We're not the deer. Why would you think that? Um, but we have allowed, in a sense, an overgrazing of this idea of God as man that has destroyed a much bigger ecosystem of who God is. And so the answer is not open season on men. The answer is reintroduce wolves into the habitat and see what happens. And it does, oh yeah, clap it up. Are we a clapping church now? I have been wanting this. But the answer is reintroduce wolves. And in my mind, when I was hearing about this story, I was like, oh, I guess I know what happened. You reintroduce wolves, and then they balance out the deer, and it's fine. No, you reintroduce wolves, they balance out the deer, and otters come, and birds, and hawks, and all of these things. And I really do believe if we can start to understand and see God as female and male, and we are able to carry that together, then we will be able to be more open to see God in the wind and in flowers and as dew and fire and whispers, right? 
This is a whole ecosystem of God that we have let die because we let deer just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. And what are we missing? What beauty is there in God that we just don't get to see because we are too busy living in some desert that's supposed to look like Yellowstone? So here's what I want to do. Um, I want to engage in some rowboat community challenges here because I think the, all of us, you look around the world and I'm like, dear God, we need a bigger view of God. God has to get bigger than what we understand. It's obviously not working. Because if you can say that you believe in the same God as me and you're marching down the street with a Confederate flag, something has gone awry, right? Is God that small that God cares about your nationalism? We have to create a bigger narrative. And so I think it starts with a simple breakdown of maybe God's not a man, right? And what will that open up in our understanding? So one thing I think will be super rad if we all do is just be aware of our language. Let's start there, right? Katie, I don't know why this was so funny to me, but she was talking. She's like, why do we always gender animals that we don't even know? We just assume, like, oh, look at that little guy. He's probably hungry. When you say, like, a stray raccoon. I'm like, why is that raccoon? Why is it raccoon a guy? I don't know, you know? Who knows what that raccoon wants to be? So, um, but how do we be aware of our language, right? Like, hey, guys, businessman, congressman, cameraman. CEO man. Um, but how do we be aware of the places in which our society and culture has given us language that may impact negatively the way we see God? And the second thing is let's just all try to, for two weeks, kind of making this up as I go along, for two weeks, let's just try to not say he for God. Let's just try. Is everyone who can? Thank you. Thank you. Who's with me? Yeah. yeah. Looking at Amanda's girl shirt is giving me power. Like, yeah, girls. Um, but honestly, let's try. And let's think about the ways in which God can get bigger if we get God out of this box that says, you are one thing that I can wrap my mind around and understand. I think we would all be better for it. So to answer the question, why do we say you for God? because the patriarchy. But the bigger question is, what are we missing? And that's what I hope we all walk away with today is, oh, I want to be able to see God in the wind and in the whisper and in the dew. And that starts with seeing God as bigger than male. So we're doing on time. We're doing fine enough. Uh, We're going to do a short so just like be ready for like a short answer with your groups. So you want to get out of here on time um, and go ponder these things and have coffee with someone and talk about God as she. So uh, you're going to break back up into your groups and we are going to talk about these questions. What practical steps can you take to begin to see God as mother and what will be your biggest barrier to that?
Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.